Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message about our sponsors. In this episode, we'll be discussing quick hits, chest wall reconstruction, and abdominal wall reconstruction. We will talk a little bit about the physiology of the chest wall. So first, we'll talk about tidal volume. Tidal volume is the volume of air that is moved into or out of the lungs during quiet, normal breathing. Vital capacity is the volume of air expired after the deepest inspiration. Residual volume is the volume of air remaining after maximal exhalation. There's always a certain amount remaining. And dead space volume is the amount of air inhaled that does not take part in gas exchange that gets trapped in your upper airway. The etiology of chest wall wounds can come from several different sources. What we're tested on most is radiation. That can cause longstanding ulcers after breast cancer, et cetera, and result in osteonecrosis. Treatment includes biopsy of the ulcer first to confirm that it is not cancer, followed by excision of all the radiation damaged tissue, including the ribs. Pectus excavatum is also tested. This is the most common congenital chest wall deformity and is more common in males. Treatment includes minimally invasive procedures, such as the intrathoracic retrosternal support bars between the ages of 6 and 12, which is mid-adolescence. Reinsertion of the correction bar is not always successful in correcting post-adolescent patients since the bones have ossified. And we had a question last year that talked about a treatment recurrence of female patients, and this patient had no respiratory issues, and the treatment was implantation of bilateral silicone implants for breast augmentation and a customized silicone elastomer for the sternal defect. There are also etiologies that include infections of thoracic procedures, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So when we discuss reconstruction of chest wall, um, we'll talk about some different flaps that can be used. And then we'll also discuss rib reconstruction and then some buzzwords to watch out for. So the different flaps are omental flaps, pectoralis flaps, latissimus, serratus, and rectus. And those are the ones that we're most commonly tested on. And when you have a radiated wound, you have to treat it with vascularized tissue. So a mental flap specifically are good for midline defects like sternal chest wounds. Pec flaps, which are supplied by the thoracoacromial vessels or the internal mammary perforators or the lateral thoracic artery, are good for anterior chest wall defects. A unilateral pec flap will not cover a central sternal wound. Latissimus flaps are based on the thoracodorsal vessels and are good for anterior chest wall defects. This is a type 5 muscle. So it has one dominant and multiple segmental pedicles. It covers large defects. It's a large flap, but it does not reach the sternal wounds either. We use this a lot with breast reconstruction. So if you imagine the distance that it can cover there, just know that it cannot cover the sternal wounds in the middle, and that's an omental flap. So another thing to know for latissimus flaps are that uh, any sort of thoracotomy, especially posterior lateral, can make this flap unreliable because you don't know if they have hit the pedicle when, when going through that incision. Serratus flaps are smaller, but are good for posterior chest wounds. Rectus flaps are based off the superficial inferior epigastric systems coming off of the external iliac. And when you are deciding if you can do a rectus flap, make sure to take note if they have had a radical resection on that side of the abdomen or the chest, because these vessels can often be ligated. 
You can use contralateral rectus or abdominal based flaps for anterior and central chest wall reconstruction. So this is another option for central chest wall. And just to butt in for a second. So if you have a patient that has had breast cancer and radiation or some kind of modified radical mastectomy, those are buzzwords for the superficial epigastric or internal mammary not being in place. So you cannot base an ipsilateral flap on that side of chest wall reconstruction. Additionally, radiation makes the superficial system very unreliable, particularly in breast cancer. So in terms of rib reconstruction, we use reconstruction of ribs when the defect is larger than five centimeters or four consecutive ribs. Oftentimes radiation to the chest wall can cause fibrosis and loss of respiratory efficiency because there is less paradoxical motion with, with rib resection. So you can tolerate more resection if you've had radiation. If the question stem states that the patient has a loss of thoracic compliance, there is no need for skeletal reconstruction. Well, Integrity, right? what that means is when you lose thoracic compliance, you'll have less paradoxical motion with breathing, meaning that you don't need to reconstruct the chest wall to have a normal respiratory cycle. So that is why. But the size is five centimeters or four consecutive ribs. And then additionally for rib resections, anterior and posterior defects are tolerated uh, much more than lateral defects. So buzzwords to watch out for. First one, a cabbage with internal mammary harvest. So that means that your internal mammary and superficial system is not intact. Wide excisions from breast cancer or debridement will contribute to local obliteration of the vessels. For example, your internal mammary. And then radiation to the breast also makes the internal mammary on that same side very unreliable. So remember that the rectus flap is based on that superficial system, which is a continuation of your internal mammary or internal thoracic artery. So you cannot do an ipsilateral rectus if your internal mammary has been sacrificed because you're basing that pedicle off the superficial system. Complications of chest wall reconstruction, one that we were tested on within the last couple of years includes cardiac tamponade. So we have to remember Beck's triad, which is hypotension, elevated venous pressure with jugular distension and muffled heart sounds. Treatment is decompression. So make sure that you listen to the patient's heart sounds to confirm. And then finally, we'll talk about gynecomastia, which is in chest pathologies and included in chest and ab wall. So gynecomastia is male breast enlargement. This can be due to excess circulating estrogen, decreased androgens or deficiency in androgen receptors. In older men, it is commonly due to excessive aromatization of androgens to estrogens. Pseudogynecomastia is distinguished by gynecomastia by a physical exam where palpation will reveal soft fatty breast with no glandular or periareolar tissue. And this is often seen in overweight patients. There is a grading system with gynecomastia and this lends itself to treatment. So grade one is minimal breast hypertrophy without ptosis. Grade two is moderate hypertrophy without ptosis. Grade three is severe hypertrophy with moderate ptosis, and grade four is severe hypertrophy with severe ptosis. Prior to any kind of treatment mechanism, you should remember to perform an examination of the scrotum and testes to rule out any testicular masses, as well as measurement of beta HCG, as these can lead to breast enlargement. Treatment is based on the degree of breast enlargement and ptosis, hence the grading system. So liposuction is effective for mild to moderate gynecomastia without ptosis. So liposuction alone does not treat breast ptosis. That also includes females. Direct periareolar excision and subcutaneous mastectomy for patients with ptosis and with glandular tissue, as it's hard to perform liposuction on glandular tissues. And those with severe ptosis may benefit from a mastectomy and free nipple graft.
If there is significant glandular component to the male breast, it is important to complete a subtotal glandular resection. And remember, liposuction does not address this. And then if the patient is pubertal and presents to your office, you should observe this for at least six months to a year prior to surgical intervention so that the male breast stabilizes in growth. And then medication-induced gynecomastia is common, and this is from medications like luprolide, which can cause gynecomastia and mastodynia, which is breast tenderness. So that's all we have for chest wall. Rosie, why don't you get us started on abdominal wall reconstruction? Okay, so when we're talking about abdominal wall reconstruction, a lot of our questions will stem from a defect in the um, abdominal wall, and one common one they test on is a desmoid-type fibromatosis which is a rare locally infiltrative mesenchymal neoplasm, and it's found in young adults. It doesn't metastasize, but it has aggressive local force. So the treatment includes radical resection with wide margins. That involves taking frozen margins to ensure you have negative margins. Um, Reconstruction should only start when you have negative margins, and it should include a contralateral anterior component separation and bridging mesh placement with a primary skin closure if possible. You can also use pedicled flaps like the ALT or rectus femoris, um, but should use a mesh in addition if the fascia has been violated. Anterior component separation is a type of abdominal wall reconstruction, especially in hernias, and it's performed by making an incision longitudinally in the external oblique aponeurosis, just lateral to the semilunaris. Only cut the fascia, do not cut the muscle beneath it. And this allows for advancement of the myofascial complex, including the rectus, the internal oblique, and the transversalis. The intercostal nerves that supply the anterior abdominal wall run between the internal oblique and the transversalis muscle, and those are not divided. You can perform a perforator sparing component separation, and you just have to be careful when dissecting around the umbilicus. The advancements that you can get from this procedure are often tested. So you can get, this is unilaterally, so from each side, you can get 4 centimeters at the epigastric region, 10 centimeters at the waist or the umbo, and 4 centimeters in the suprapubic area. So four, 10, four, and that's for one side. So total, you can have eight, 28. And the smallest area of advancements is sub and subcostal. We also have posterior component separation, which divides the posterior rectus sheath and begins with a vertical incision, um, point, about half a centimeter medial to the linea semilunaris and continues laterally in the avascular plane posterior to the transversalis. You can also include a transversus abdominis release which is a tar, and that can provide further mobility and preserve innervation of the rectus itself. Thanks, Rosie. The next thing we'll talk about is hernia repair. So in general, some principles, recurrence rates are lowest when primary fascial closure of the abdominal wall is reinforced with mesh placement as an underlay. So that's a buzzword underlay. A bridging mesh repair is associated with the highest rates of recurrence overall in hernia repair. And the overlay technique has higher rates of recurrence than an underlay. So you prefer underlay over overlay over a bridge. A Reeves stopper repair or an underlay repair is a sublay mesh placed between the rectus muscle and the posterior sheath. And this has the lowest overall recurrence between three and 6%. Typically dissection is carried only to the semilunaris. You can release internal oblique or transversus to extend the dissection. But remember, if you extend your dissection into the internal oblique, it will disrupt the muscular innervation. And then when you think about large fascial defects with sufficient skin, you'll perform a bilateral component separation with an interposition mesh, either biologic versus non-biologic, followed by a skin closure. 
If there is insufficient skin, then you're thinking about other reconstructive methods such as tissue expansion, local tissue rearrangement, or distant flaps. There are two types of mesh that are non-biologic, which is an example of a proline mesh or biologic. And biologic is used for contaminated wound beds and provide an intact extracellular matrix and support tissue regeneration. They are more resistant to infection. They are degraded over time by collagenase, which accounts for higher occurrence rates and abdominal bulge. They have a higher cost, but the ventral hernia working group recommends use in contaminated fields in cases of infected mesh and septic dehiscence. The risk of recurrence, the highest predictor of recurrence overall is whether the fascia can be closed over the hernia or it has to be bridged. All right, moving on to pediatric abdominal wall defects. Important to keep these straight because we're often tested on these as well. So an omphalocele is a midline partial thickness abdominal wall defect covered by a membrane of amnion and peritoneum occurring within the umbilical ring and containing abdominal contents. This one has the cover of the amnion over it and the peritoneum. It's associated with elevated um, maternal serum alpha fetoprotein and associated with chromosomal abnormalities. On the other hand, gastroschisis is a full thickness paraumbilical abdominal wall defect associated with eviscerated bowel. This one does not have a cover over it. And it's associated as well with elevated maternal serum alpha fetoprotein. So I think we got a question last year and it didn't tell us which one it was. And it was, what are these things associated with? Mm -hmm. And the answer was maternal serum alpha fetoprotein, but we actually didn't need to know the difference because they're both (laughs) higher. Treatment of these both is aimed at primary closure or silo placement with reduction and eventual primary abdominal closure. You can use an anterior component separation in these kids to achieve closure for bulges or defects under five centimeters. Once it is over five centimeters, you should use tissue expanders and flap advancement. Complications of abdominal wall reconstruction include abdominal compartment syndrome, which develops after a rapid increase in interabdominal pressure. Some mechanisms of this include vascular compression, elevation of the diaphragm and direct organ compression, which leads to multiple organ failure. Vascular compression leads to decreased flow through the IVC and increase in renal vascular resistance, decrease in preload and increase in systemic afterload. And then some of the miscellaneous topics that are covered in the same section on the test. So myelomeningocele involves dorsal herniation of the meninges and spinal cord through the vertebrae. It's often diagnosed prenatally by elevated maternal serum alpha fetoprotein again. Treatment of myelomeningocele is repair immediately with neurosurgery, and we usually do the soft tissue coverage with plastic surgeons. We want to make sure that the defect is covered primarily for the risk and infection. And that's the primary goal, and that's get asked. So why, why must we perform a stout closure to prevent infection? infection? Usually this repair occurs in the first 24 to 48 hours of life for this reason. And methods of reconstruction include local fascial flaps and skin advancement flaps like paraspinous fascial flaps. And that's asked over and over and over again. So you don't need a specific name muscle flap. It's typically a local fascial flap or a paraspinous muscle. So those are the answers to look for. Um, APRs, abdominal perineal resections, are often treated by plastic surgeons with rectus abdominis myctaneous flaps. This also includes reconstruction of posterior vaginal defects. Poland syndrome is tested a lot in all different sections of the test, and this involves the absence of the pectoralis and breast hypoplasia and axillary webbing. You can also have rib and cartilage hypoplasia and ipsilateral brachysyndactyly. 
The primitive cell that failed to develop in Pullen syndrome is a mesoderm derivative. Next topic is renal failure. Pre-renal failure um, causes include hypovolemia, cardiac failure, or sepsis, basically anything that prevents blood from getting to the kidneys. On examination, a UA is normal. BUN to creatinine is usually 20 to 1 or high. Urinary sodium is less than 20. Urine osmols is higher than 500. And the FENA is less than 1%. Intrinsic renal failure. Causes of intrinsic renal failure include disorders of the renal parenchyma, acute tubular necrosis, or glomerular disease. Um, you have a normal BUN to serum creatinine ratio. Which was the question asked. So which of these lab values are normal? Your BUN to serum creatinine. Your urine osmols are low at less than 350. And you have an abnormal UA. Post-renal failure includes renal vein occlusion and urinary tract obstruction. So anything that stops urine from getting out of the kidneys. You have an elevated BUN to serum creatinine ratio. FENA is greater than one. And you have a normal UA with this as well. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in for our quick hits, chest and abdominal wall reconstruction. Again, this is high yield facts only aimed for in-service preparation. We hope you enjoyed it and join us for our next topic, cleft lip and palate. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.